Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Sally Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Justin McNally to the show. Currently, Justin is the Chief Innovation Officer at Chowley, a direct POS integration for third-party delivery platforms. Justin is an experienced founder with a background in the marketing and advertising industry. He graduated with a BLA focused on interactive arts and media from Columbia College in Chicago. Some of his skills include digital strategy, PHP, WordPress, Ruby on Rails, and content management systems. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, nice to see you. Thanks for coming on. Justin, if you don't mind, uh, share a little bit about yourself with our listeners, your role at Chowley, and what is Chowley? Sure. Well, just a little background on me, sort of coming right out of college. Uh, I started a digital agency with a friend of mine, uh, building uh, custom software. Nothing really at the scale of Dragon Spears, uh, <laughs> but it was a great shop where I learned a variety of disciplines other than just programming. It shaped the way that I sort of think of the balance between writing, you know, beautiful code and, you know, really delivering function on uh, time and budget. Sort of as things progressed and I was building software for other people, I wanted something that was truly mine, something I could influence, you know, both the marketing and the business, because I felt like a lot of the applications and stuff that we were building at the time didn't really have strong businesses behind them. So I wanted to kind of flex that muscle, you know, and really explore kind of taking the full business along with the product uh, to market. I originally met my co-founder Sterling at 1871 here in Chicago, and the rest was history. We took an idea, which was Chally, from that initial sort of seedling of an idea to our first customer in about a month. And, you know, it was very bare bones MVP, as you can imagine. Uh, but, you know, it worked well enough to really prove that we could eventually take it to scale. At Chally, basically, our aim was to bring and democratize different online ordering technologies to the masses, which for us really meant SMBs. The uh, sort of OLOs of the world at the time were really focused more on the larger mid-market and enterprise. And we wanted to sort of bring the ability to get this automation and cost savings of sort of integrating online marketplaces with the restaurant point of sale to more of the individual operators who didn't have access to large technology teams, information offices, and developers themselves. So sort of by creating the Chally product, we were able to bring a lot of those cost savings to the smaller operators in the restaurant space. That's very cool. Yeah, my history at Chally was, you know, I really started out as sort of the technical co-founder taking on the CTO role. You know, as the company grew and got larger and we brought in more engineers, we wanted to bring in a more senior person with that management experience to build that team out. And I quickly took over the CPO or chief product officer role to sort of fill that gap and really drive roadmap and try to measure it. Again, as time progressed, you know, we found ourselves in sort of like a right person for the right seat situation, uh, which is something we learned from Traction. And as a result of that, as much as I loved working directly in product, we brought in recently uh, a friend of yours, Michael Feinberg, to really lead that department and grow the department for sort of the needs of the business as it grew. You know, he's a really great integrator, I would say, and he's done a really good job, uh, you know, in his first three months here 
of restructuring that department and really getting Chally what it needs for product. Now I sit as the CIO or CINO. I'm not really sure how we're acronizing the uh, innovator role these days. I think CINO is a little less confusing when you think of all the chief information officers of the world. But it's brought me back to basics as I think about sort of like creating a new department within Chally. I think as businesses scale, it becomes more and more important to make sure you keep that innovation aspect because it's, it's very easy to sort of get comfortable with what our business does today. That's a lot. And I think that's a wrap on the whole podcast. You covered it all. Nice work. <laughs> no, uh, just kidding aside. And it's, I, I, I'm so excited that you have Michael uh, working for you. He's, he's a tremendously focused operational expert, right? So taking things in, and you touched on a lot of those topics in that introduction, uh, visionary operationalizing and, uh, but kind of going back, cause I think the, some of that initial story of you and Sterling meeting at an 1871 event, do either of you have a background in either point of sales or restaurants or retail, or how did you guys pick this market? Well, I mean, for me, it was a bit of a natural progression. I grew up in retail. So my parents started a candy store in a very small town in Wakarusa, Indiana, which is where I'm from. And I grew up sort of, you know, seeing customers, interactions, things like that, watching them really take like what was like a fledgling business and growing it into like a much larger like multi-store uh, enterprise. So I've always had like sort of that retail customer first uh, focus, I think, that I, I, I gained from growing up in that environment. On Sterling's side, uh, you know, not to speak for him, basically the venture that he was uh, kind of wrapping up when we started this was a integrated sort of platform for people in restaurants and bars to basically be able to like open tabs and place orders sort of like away from the bar, but in the bar. If you think about the way that like uh, bars and restaurants are structured, like on a very busy night, like sometimes you could be waiting five or 10 minutes, like in a big line, overwhelming, uh, you know, the cashiers and bartenders. And uh, his concept uh, for his last company, Nick's, was that kind of through an app, you could say, okay, like I want this beer, this drink, et cetera, order it from your phone and then just kind of go pick it up at the bar to sort of make it easier on bartenders instead of having to take orders and pour drinks, you know, they just sort of have a queue and they kind of work, work through the drinks and you sort of pick it up. So almost sort of like a precursor to what we see at uh, Starbucks today, where you can sort of order ahead. It was sort of ordering ahead while you're at the bar. So we both, I think, have a certain amount of experience with point of sale. And I think we also have a certain amount of experience in the area of serving sort of customers directly. That's great. And uh, your background with your parents and having lived uh, the entrepreneur's life, watching them take chances, grow a business. I could only imagine how valuable it is that you, I mean, you intimately know their pain, right? You know oh, yeah. exactly like what they hate about the current offerings. Oh, it's, it's totally one of the, uh, one of the stories I tell in terms of like my entrepreneurship journey was definitely like growing up in that environment from a young age and watching them do it was one of my largest inspirations and feeling like I could start my own company or at least like I understood sort of what it takes, but like the payback and benefits of actually being able to directly contribute to like the growth of your own business. That's great. I, I think that's really great experience. Uh, I myself, same thing. My father started his law firm after he got out of the Navy in the basement of our house. 
My familiarity and disdain for color printouts are probably unnatural at this point. Uh, just, uh, you know, get it. if you tried to print in color in my house, it was pretty much you could get kicked out of the house for that kind of behavior, even though they look great. So that was your family's version of turning the thermostat up? Oh, no, we still had the thermostat. It was it was more of an and, more than an or. It's, it's more additive. The list was pretty long. My dad's a Navy officer. It's a pretty long list of areas that you could get yourself into a pickle. Uh, it was really kind of hard to not get yourself into trouble. So uh, the man has, if some people work in different mediums, my father's artwork is punishment, right? So I think it's one of his greatest skills. And you learn a lot. So you also learn what not to do. But we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> but I do think it, it's it's tremendously insightful when I talk to uh, founders who whose parents have given them, uh, if it's not the courage, the the concept that like, well, I could probably do better than them, right? It doesn't look that hard. It doesn't take super people to to be able to do this. It takes a lot of hard work, and you got to be okay with some risk. Yeah. Do you still go to your parents for advice? Yeah. Yeah. They're a great sounding board. And obviously, you know, they've lived the journey, I would say, at a different scale than the size of our company's at today. But I think that there's a lot of like learnings and knowledge that, you know, is kind of completely disconnected from the scale that you're at. I mean, good businesses are good businesses and good business practices are good good business practices. I think that I'm just lucky to be able to sort of operate, you know, with larger budgets and larger scale, you know, than they've been able to. There's it's kind of a big difference between a VC backed company and like a bootstrapped candy store. And, you know, that's nothing to say anything negative against them. I think to your point, they hope that I do better than them and I'm trying to, and I hope someday, you know, my two daughters do better than me. Is there a difference between what the biggest surprise was for you going through this versus what your parents' biggest surprise was? I'm not really sure on that one to be like hundred percent honest. I try not to get too surprised. It'd be hard for me to really nail down like the times where I've been super surprised. I think we just take it kind of a, a day at a time. They're all surprises. Yeah. Right. I think I forget which branch of the military calls it, but the only easy day was yesterday. And I think <laughs> that that does apply to entrepreneurship, right? Don't get comfortable because it's about to change. It always is. And I think that for people who enjoy that, that's one of the challenges you touched on that I'd, I'd like to talk about is like that transition that you've made over the last couple of years where you've, I don't want to say you elevated yourself because the end result is you were the boss from the beginning, but that, that whole idea of like um, being able to delegate things or to organize, you know, there's a challenge when you're, you're growing and for people who haven't worked at a, a a growing organization at the scale that you're growing, sometimes it's hard to understand that, you know, your goal should be to go from wearing like seven hats to six hats to five hats, yeah. right? It's it's not like you get the seven people to wear the hats. And so you got to find people who can do that as well. So finding people who who are, are a little bit more generalist than specialist, and, and that's kind of hard. Is that something that you've seen in the last couple of years as, as things have really kind of picked up? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely as organizations grow, like you move from like generalist to specialist, right? Like one, because you can afford it. And two, just because the business needs it. Mm -hmm. You know, smaller organizations, I think, are definitely more tolerant of generalists in the sense that we can do a lot of things okay. 
But as you get larger, you need a lot of people that do a few things very well. So there's there's a huge there's a huge gap, I think, in like the needs of a startup versus a need the needs of a five or six year old company, you know, like where we're at today. I think that, you know, on the topic of innovation, I think it's very easy for startups. I think that innovation is the core of startups. It's the entire product. Uh, it's the entire development. Everything's greenfield. And if you can't innovate, you won't get from zero to one. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be lean. It's got to be fast. And you know, it's got to be right. When you're innovating at the startup level, the whole idea has to be novel. And you have to find sort of that niche and start to dig your moat. For us, you know, the moat was sort of doing the impossible, right? Like when we came onto the scene, there was really no one integrating online orders from Grubhub, from DoorDash, from Uber. Eats. So we had to figure out basically how to do that. For us, that meant sort of emulating someone working in the restaurant at an almost humanistic level because there were no real like machine APIs for us to leverage like at the time. So we really had to kind of like work our way out and think about what are all the tasks that the restaurant owner does and then how can we basically interface with the systems that they're using today and replicate those to sort of build the entire business. So that's like a really hard thing for like competitors and other people to really create in the space. And it's one of the things that allowed us like sort of the luxury of, you know, being the the main competitor. Now, as that space has sort of grown and, you know, there's more partnerships and these companies are more partnership focused, sort of the innovation at scale changes a lot. You know, what we were doing five years ago is no longer novel. So we have to think of like new things that are going to set us apart. And basically just doing the integration aspects of the company like we did when we originally started and having that as our niche don't really apply. So the trap that you can fall into as your business scales is that you're not constantly innovating. You don't know how to innovate or you're super risk adverse because it's working. But all of a sudden, you know, you wait too long without innovating and now the entire market's caught up and they're jumping past you. I think there's this really interesting concept of sort of the smaller companies that will come in and they can take a lot of risk where you don't want to. And that's why the incumbents also often get very displaced in the industry. You know, you sort of crumble under your own weight just because you're not willing to take a lot of those risks that a small company will. So I think when you're thinking about sort of innovation at scale, you have to figure out ways to take risks, but also mitigate those risks. Because if you don't, you sort of end up as this lazy giant in a way. You know, one of the stories that I like to think about is is IBM, obviously still a great company. But I mean, there used to be this old mantra in the industry that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, you know, and then sort of like the PC market exploded and you have like 100 competitors because there were smaller companies that eventually overcame you know, that initial barrier, and there wasn't enough innovation potentially to really keep the market share that they originally saw. It's a great point. I want to go back a little bit because there's a phrase you threw in there a couple of times, and I, I think it'd be great for people to understand, like, use the term moat, right? Yeah. Now, of course, you're not talking about actually digging a moat, which would be cool, but a little laborious and probably outside of, you know, the realm of a computer science uh, expert. But like in your mindset, what is that strategically? What, what is the moat and why is that important? 
Yeah, the moat is basically the thing that keeps your competitors away from your customers, like in a way. So like there's different moats that you can dig, like whether it's exclusive partnerships, whether it's technology that people are like super far behind on and have to create. But it's really anything that keeps your product novel or it is some sort of strategic advantage you have based on contracts and partnerships. So it's a very important thing, I think, for startups, especially when they're looking for like early funding is investors often want to see that moat because it helps both protect their investment and also your market share. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of people, I get like that's a concept for you that this is really how, as you're building a business, it's what can we defend? What can we protect ourselves with? What are, and then you, you mentioned, you know, the smaller, newer, younger companies coming in and, and open to doing things that are riskier that more established organizations are not open to doing. But I got to believe you recognize as well, you used to be that company too, right? You played those dangerous games at one point. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's a huge advantage, like I said, because you're willing to take those risks. You have a lot less to lose, right? As a larger company, there's a lot more to lose if you swing big and miss. If you're a small company and swing big and miss, you just sort of just start over. So, I mean... Funny enough, you'll just see a lot of, of of younger companies like willing to go in there. I think the other thing they can do is sort of attack like the little crevices in your product, for instance. So, you know, let's say you do something really good, but there's like one part of that, that you don't really do as well, but it's sort of covered under your offering. Well, that's a place a company can kind of come in, wedge, open it up, and then that's where they can get their market share. You know, it's it's something we see a lot. So... For instance, if you're looking at Chali as like an integrations company, we do integration really well, but then you start to break down, okay, integration has these things. And let's say at the end of it, the restaurant wants like all of that data to be really well reported. Well, if our reporting isn't super solid, you get a competitor that comes in and just says, well, we'll do the reporting part of it. And now all of a sudden, sort of this bundled industry you have becomes completely unbundled and you know it affects like sort of the value that your product can offer. So that's one of the other things that you have to look out for with sort of these younger companies is as you get larger you're going to be attacked on you know all these individual verticals that you might not have even seen initially. So that's a good place for sort of the innovator in the company to say okay like we need to do this better. It's awesome. It's a uh, it's impressive how much you've been able to reorganize to i think the as we talked about before i think sometimes uh, founders get a little stuck in how they identify their value within the organization and getting them unstuck from what got them here won't get them there concept yeah and so you've done that very well and i'm i'm hoping you could maybe share like how you were able to keep that perspective uh an honest assessment of what the organization is and where you represent maximum value to it and yourself. No, absolutely. I mean, I think a big part of it's like ego and checking the egos at the door. I think that we have to keep in perspective that the company's larger, even than its co-founders. So we have to understand sort of like what the needs of the organization are and put those first and then figure out where we can basically create value. So if I'm not going to be effective at managing a large team and I feel like I can add value in bringing new ideas and pushing those things forward, you know, it's sort of time to step out of that seat, but then find a new place for myself 
in the organization, like where I can drive value. So one of the main reasons that I brought in a new CTO to sort of take over for me, even though I really enjoyed the technology, I was very invested in it from basically like writing all the code, you know, that took us up to sort of that first milestone. You have to realize that, you know, maybe my skills and where I can drive the most value in the organization isn't just in managing engineers. It's sort of in driving the product roadmap. And then you drive the product roadmap for a while and you realize, well, now the company needs, you know, better KPIs, better OKRs, things like that, that I'm not as well versed in sort of like creating and measuring. Well, now it's time to sort of figure out like what the next thing is. So, you know, then you sort of bring in somebody great like Michael and you figure out, okay, like, I think I can do a lot of good work in figuring out how to make teams work better together, how I can go out and figure out how to bring marketing, you know, some more leads through technology and sort of really piecing those things together. A big part of what my role as the CIO or CINO is, is really now in helping those teams work better together and making sure that everyone sort of accomplishes, you know, all of their rocks. That's fantastic. And I, I, I think some people forget that Bill Gates was never the CEO of Microsoft, right? Right. He knew that was not his strength. That's not really where he's going to provide maximum value. Chief scientist, he's always out there trying to figure out what do developers love, what do, what do, what do technologists want, right? And so I think sometimes we fall into that bureaucracy trap of like, oh, role establishes value, right? If I'm in charge of more people, if I'm this, and then it, it, you know, part of it is a lot of us get into entrepreneurship because we don't want to be managing big groups of people. It's not really our natural strength where, you know, I like to use the term door kicker, right? We can go open new doors and see things a little bit differently and, and come up with new ideas and then have the kind of the either courage or stupidity to pursue it. Right. I definitely think that's a big part, right? I think that, you know, part of my role today is being the one who can push for more risk in a risk adverse business as we get larger. What I'm hoping is that there's someone else out there that is willing to push back on those crazy ideas and tell me where I'm wrong before we make those. But I don't think if you don't have those voices really pushing for the riskier things, I think that there's a lot of stagnation that can happen in the company. So I think right now, one of my biggest value brings, like you said, is trying to kick those doors open or at least push the rest of our leadership team more into thinking about what a world looks like in our company where we you know, take those risks to at least get those new ideas considered so that we don't stagnate. And speaking of Justin, as you were talking, I was thinking, first of all, it's so difficult when you're growing and, and you're fairly new to bring in talent, right? Because every person you bring in can kind of change the culture. I forget who we had on, but one startup said, you know, you, you found your business, you hire all your friends, and then you run out of friends and you have to hire other people. <laughs> so I'm just curious what that's been like for you, because I, I think our listeners would really appreciate hearing your story there. Yeah, I mean, when I brought in our uh, CTO, that was a, a friend of mine, obviously, but, you know, he was able to bring in a, a lot of really good talent, like on the engineering side. But yeah, I mean, culture is definitely a huge part of how we think about those hires. I think that there's a ton of different ways to like run the business, a ton of different cultures that you're going to establish. You have to figure out sort of what works best for you, the culture that you want to sort of maintain, 
I think that that goes all the way from, you know, are you engineering focused as a business? Are you product focused as a business? Are you revenue focused as a business? And that's not to say technology focused businesses don't drive revenue, but, you know, are we building tools for developers? Are we building tools for restaurant owners? And then I think that kind of helps you align sort of like the types of hires and the type of culture. And that really helps you inform like your hiring decisions. So I think you need to sort of decide what kind of organization you are and kind of work backwards from there. So as you mentioned earlier, this is a quickly growing industry, right? Obviously, the last three years has accelerated a lot of adoption for different formats to engage with different restaurants. What are you seeing next year? What are you seeing beyond next year? What do what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh there's a lot of like really interesting things going on with making the industry more responsive to the customer's needs. You know, in online ordering, I think we're seeing a lot more of like we need to meet the customer where they are. And what I mean is, you know, more multi-channel, right? Like we kind of started the restaurant industry was you went in, sat down and ate at a restaurant. And then, well, some people want to eat at home now. So now we're going to like launch delivery, you know, and, and, and that piece comes. And now it's, I want to order over the phone instead of having to go in. Or when I go to the restaurant, you know, it's much easier to order from my phone or a tablet or a kiosk. Uh, so it's really going to be continuing, I think, a lot of that multi-channel and a lot of the new channels that are, are emerging. I've heard more and more about people, you know, like placing food orders through the metaverse or food orders through their car infotainment system. So I think like really getting all of those different ordering endpoints to funnel into the restaurant the same way that all their other orders do will really help speed up the adoption of those different technologies, not only from the end consumer, but also from the restaurant. If we can't make it easy for restaurants to adopt these new channels, then the restaurants won't be available to the customers on those new channels. So I think one of Charlie's big mission statements, if you will, is we want to make it really easy for the restaurant to adopt these new technologies so that they can show up on as many platforms as possible so these new technologies can be adopted and leveraged by the customers. So when we talk about sort of the customer's journey and the restaurant's journey, it's really about connecting customers and restaurants basically wherever they want to go. So we're trying to build a suite of tools and a suite of products that can support that so that when somebody invents web 4.0 or web 5.0, whatever those things might be, uh, it's really easy for restaurants to leverage them without making huge changes to their operations. So they don't have to add six new tablets or have one of their order takers or the VR headset on. We want to figure out how to basically make their sole purpose or their sole job or responsibility, just making the food. That's what restaurants want to do. They don't necessarily want to be technology organizations. That's awesome. It's an exciting space and it's really excited for you and for Charlie. It seems like you're uh, really in a great spot. I know, Shelly, you, you generally have some uh, questions around mentors, so I figured now would be a pretty good time. Yeah, I mean, we talked about your parents, right? You got a lot of inspiration from them being entrepreneurs, but you know, who, who are some other folks that have influenced you and, and things that you've learned from them? Yeah, definitely. I'd say uh, one of our uh, very early mentors and uh, 
seed stage, A stage investors, who's uh, Troy Hennikoff of Math Ventures. I don't know if uh, you guys know him at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super great guy, super knowledgeable, really led us through our initial like fundraising process, has been a board member of ours almost since the beginning. I think one of the biggest things that he ever told us that really sticks with me today is what gets measured gets done. And, you know, that's really been important as we've been thinking about product and the way that we take product to market is, you know, if we can't tell, you know, where we were, then how can we figure out where we want to go? And even more so, how we know if we're getting there. So I think like, you know, really building in a lot of those processes to manage measuring, you know, the success of any sort of initiative that we do was a big thing, you know, that he, he always led, led with us on. And uh, yeah, that that's probably like one of like the largest standouts in our business journey. Uh, Troy has been just completely uh, invaluable. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I think Justin, you know, really appreciate you taking the time to be on with us today. Uh, obviously, I, I always enjoy speaking with uh, other entrepreneurs. It's a, it's a very specific lifestyle and choice. And I don't think there's anything more rewarding in the world personally. Uh, it's, it's probably the best self-help program you could ever come up with because it's always your fault. Yeah. Uh, there's really nobody else to blame. <laughs> so which is uh, liberating and terrifying all at the same time. So I, I congratulate you on all of your success. Uh, please uh, would love to have you back on uh, maybe next year, hear how things are going, get an update from you if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to you. No, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Justin. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 